Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and this is the 100th episode of ACRAC. It is hard to believe. I am not sure I ever thought there would be 100 episodes of ACRAC, but certainly thrilled to be here and at this milestone. As you may know, if you are listening, I asked uh, on the 99th episode uh, for people to feel free to reach out and submit questions, and that the 100th episode would be a response to listener questions. I thought that might be fun. We'll see how it goes. I will say I did not anticipate the volume of questions um, that would come in, and unfortunately won't be able to respond to all of them, but I have read through them. And I will do my best to uh, hit some categories that hopefully will include most, and we'll also try to work some uh, of the other questions into future episodes if I don't actually get to yours. But thank you to everyone who submitted them. It was certainly fun to listen, and I also really appreciate all of the very kind words that came in. It is a pleasure to put this out there, and I'm very grateful for all of you for listening and participating in the ongoing discussion with this and every episode uh, that we do. Uh, anesthesiologynews.com wants to feature this episode as the 100th episode and so you'll be able to check it out on their website with all their other great content they have over there so feel free to do that anesthesiologynews.com all right. I do want to just say up front a big thank you uh, to everyone who listens regularly and most especially to those who have decided to support the making of the program either by being patrons at patreon.com slash ACRAC, uh, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, or by making one-time donations to paypal.me slash ACRAC, that's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C. Um, either way, we're really grateful to all of you and, of course, to Brian Park for the work he's done making some great outlines for the episodes. Um, Despite currently being an intern, uh, he still has had some time to do that. So really uh, wonderful. And I know a lot of people use those for studying. So Brian, thank you so much. I want to also say just a big thank you to my residents. They were the initial inspiration for really starting ACRAC. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But also uh, the best part of my job uh, and my day is getting to work with the residents here at Johns Hopkins. They're just incredible people. I feel so lucky to get to be a part of their career and their lives. And so just want to say a big thank you to them for being an inspiration to me. And, of course, I couldn't do any of what I do uh, without the love and support of my wonderful wife and my three amazing daughters. Uh, So just in case they ever listen to this uh, soon or in the future, thank you to all of you. I love you, and you are the light of my life. So there were a mix of questions that came in, um, some clinical and some uh, more personal. Uh, so I will try to respond to a mix of them. Um, I'll say uh, many people wanted to know a little bit more um, about me, my life story. Um, one person even asked how much I can bench press. Uh, I will say I have no idea. Uh, certainly, I don't know when I last tried to bench press, though. I will. <laughs> when I was uh, in high school, a friend of mine had weights at his house. And I remember uh, for a while getting a little into it and um, realizing that uh, it was much harder 
harder when you actually bring the bar all the way down to touch your chest. That was my big realization. I think once I realized that, I decided bench pressing was not so much for me. Uh, my uh, exercise takes the um, shape of running uh, almost exclusively. Uh, it's just such an important part of my life. I highly, highly recommend um, it to anyone. If you haven't run, uh, don't give up after just a week or two of trying. It doesn't start feeling good till you really adjust. But I'll tell you, starting the day, even if I have to cut down on sleep and wake up a little earlier to go for a run, I will. That, to me, is just so key, starting the day off with a run, even if it's just 15, 20 minutes, but certainly um, however much you can get in will, I really think, change your day, uh, make you feel good right from the beginning, get some of that blood flowing, those endorphins flowing, wake you up. Um, It just, I feel terrible if I don't run in the morning. So I highly recommend it. Personally, always has to be outdoors. I will run outdoors in the middle of a blizzard. Uh, Much, much rather do that than run on a treadmill, but whatever works for you. Uh, If you prefer a treadmill, go for it. If you prefer biking, go for it. I think starting your day, if you can, with some cardio exercise is a great, great way to go. So think about it. Try it out if you haven't. And if you do it, good for you. Keep it up. You can listen to some great podcasts while you do it. And that takes me to a question that came in about what I listen to. Uh, so I've been, I love listening to podcasts. I listen to both podcasts and books on tape while I run. There's a ton of great content out there. On a medical side, I really like MCRIT, Scott Weingart's podcast. I think he does a really nice job. Um, Some of it obviously a little more specific to emergency medicine, but a lot of it really um, useful for uh, critical care and even for people just in pure anesthesiology. So I recommend checking that out. The New England Journal does uh, some uh, interesting podcasts. They have a curbside consult where they highlight an interesting article, or they've even done some kind of intro to statistics stuff. Not the most thrilling, uh, but they can be really educational. And if you're out for a run, you're obviously not going to fall asleep, so maybe you can mix in a little bit of drier stuff if you want. I think they do a nice job with that. Open Anesthesia also has some nice podcasts. So I think there's some decent content out there. A friend of mine recently recommended a fiction podcast called Homecoming, put out by Gimlet Media, and I had never listened to a fiction podcast before, but I listened to it and got sucked in, listened to the two seasons that encompassed the full story very quickly, and I really liked it. I also heard recommended... um, Ear Hustle, which is a really well done podcast that is put on by an inmate at San Quentin Prison in California, along with a woman who does visual art and other courses with the inmates there. And they've put this together. They discuss a lot of issues that affect uh, the prison population, as well as com- some more uh, kind of serious societal issues. Really, really well done and, and fascinating. I highly recommend that as well. There's some great books that I've read slash listened to recently that I recommend. Um, so Jody Pickold is a great author. She wrote a book called Small Great Things that is really fascinating and really delves into some interesting societal issues. Highly recommend that. Actually, a woman I was in high school with named Celeste Ng has written a couple of really interesting books, um, the most recent of which is Little Fires Everywhere, really been quite highly acclaimed. I recommend that, especially if you have any connection to the Cleveland area because she writes about Cleveland and Shaker Heights specifically. Um, so I really think that that's, that's a pretty interesting one. And then the Pulitzer Prize winning book from last year called Less, L-E-S-S, um, by Andrew Greer also uh, I thought was really interesting and well-written. So worth checking out. Uh, I try, my wife and I try to watch some TV. It's been harder since we had our third uh, daughter, uh, but I do uh, think that 
that uh, Game of Thrones is pretty fantastic. We're trying to make our way through the second season of Westworld, which is pretty interesting, pretty complex. Um, this Is Us is a great show that we really liked. There's a Netflix show called Love that's also really good. Uh, so I'll put those out there as highly recommended. I will say that The Great British Baking Show I have not yet watched, but that is probably the most recommended show that people come to me and say, I have to watch it. Haven't made it yet, but I will. So uh, I recommend uh, that as something that I, I can't personally recommend, but that is the, the thing people recommend probably the most, especially if you like baking or cooking. All right, let's, we'll come back to some of the more personal stuff. Let's uh, answer some clinical stuff uh, to the extent I can. And again, these uh, answers are going to be based mostly on my experience and some folks I've talked to, but haven't done um, full research like I would if I were doing um, a more prolonged episode on any one of these topics. Um, people asked about pressors a fair amount, and one thing that came up repeatedly was dopamine because people see a lot of dopamine used. And so there's been uh, several questions on whether there's a time for dopamine, um, when it might be appropriate to use, if ever. So I think the best answer to that is that we, it takes a long, long time for practice to change. And I think the reason you see a lot of dopamine used is because at a lot of places, including here, dopamine is one of the few pressors that can be run outside the ICU. So why might you start a patient on dopamine? They may not be going to the ICU or they may be in the ICU, but with a hope that they can get out of the ICU. And if the only thing keeping them there is a presser drip at some places, they can leave on a stable dose of dopamine. In my mind, that's about it. Bradycardia with hypotension, you'll hear that as a reason to use dopamine, and maybe that's reasonable. Dopamine certainly has a fairly significant effect on increasing heart rate and, of course, does have some vasoconstrictor effect, and so you can treat that. Now, I'm not sure it works any better than epinephrine, and it's a little bit of a dirtier drug, just hitting other receptors, and a little unclear all the effects you get. The whole idea, hopefully everyone knows this, that at certain doses you get certain effects, the renal dose dopamine at low dose, we know that's just not true for everyone. We don't know at any given dose what specific effect it'll have. It's just not that clean. So if you're looking for something that will increase heart rate and uh, fight hypotension, then really epinephrine is how I would go. But again, if you're in a situation where the only thing keeping that patient in the ICU is that they need a low dose of a stable dose of a vasopressor, you may choose dopamine for the reason that they can leave depending on your hospital, and you obviously want to know the protocols at your individual place, but you may send them on dopamine for that reason. Other questions about pressors included uh, how I use them in the operating room. Obviously, I think all of us who do anesthesia will have our first go-to be pushes of either phenylephrine or ephedrine. Personally, I, and I always discuss this with the surgeons who I'm working with, and I always talk to the surgeons the night before. I highly recommend reaching out to the surgeons you're going to be working with the night before surgery. I think it really goes a long way toward collegiality, toward finding out anything they're concerned with, telling them what you're thinking, and making sure there's no uh, nothing that they're worried about with your plan. And as part of that, I'll say to surgeons, you know, if the patient gets hypotensive, it's probably related to, at least before you've had any major blood loss or there's any other issues that have occurred, the most likely thing is that it's related to the vasodilation dilation from the anesthesia, and I usually run low-dose peripheral-dose levofed um, rather than give a ton of fluid, flood them with fluid, cause a bunch of edema that's going to put the surgical anastomoses at risk, and most surgeons are fine with that, certainly much more than they would be if they just found out that in the middle of the case the patient was on levofed. They might kind of worry about that. There's a lot of prejudice against levofed. Um, again, a lot of that is left over from the old belief that levofed was leave them dead, that it was a really dangerous drug. It certainly can be at high doses. 
But low-dose levofed, we know, does not a lot of vasoconstriction. It really helps venoconstrict. And by doing that, gets a lot of the blood back in circulation. It's almost like an autotransfusion and can just get you back, to some extent, toward a a more normal tone that you would have if you weren't under general anesthesia. So... If I find myself pushing a lot of phenylephrine and ephedrine, which, of course, in those push doses causes quite a lot of vasoconstriction, I'd much rather start a low-dose levofedrip. You could also, of course, use low-dose phenylephrine. And if you are in a situation where you're really concerned about arrhythmias, you may prefer phenylephrine over levofed because, of course, phenylephrine isn't going to have any arrhythmogenic properties because it has no beta effect. But if you're not concerned about that, levofed's a better drug, I think. It's going to increase your cardiac output uh, and prevent some of that hypotension you get just from the vasodilation of your anesthetics. So that's what I like to do. I usually start at about 0.03 or 0.04 mics per kilo per minute of uh, levofed, which is norepinephrine, um, for those of you not in the United States, and then I titrate it from there. The way I like to think about it is that you can really get up to about 0.06, somewhere between 0.06 and 0.1 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine and really just be counteracting the vasodilatory effects of your anesthetic. You want to be thinking about whether there's something else going on causing hypotension, but if there's nothing else you can identify, it's probably just the anesthesia. Above and beyond 0.1, I start to think there might be something else going on, and I want to be really careful to think about, is the patient volume down? Have they lost more blood than I think? Are they hypocalcemic? What else is going on? Have they had some ischemia? What did the EKG tracing look like? So I want to start thinking about that uh, to make sure that I'm not missing something else. But low-dose norepinephrine is going to increase cardiac output. It's going to auto-transfuse some blood from the venous pool. It's going to increase perfusion to surgical anastomoses. And then because you won't be flooding the patient with fluid to try to fight that hypotension, it's going to help prevent some of that edema. So all around, I think, a great win. But I want to emphasize again that I think a key to this, as well as just operative management in general, is communication with your surgical colleagues. Reach out, have that discussion. Again, the day before is even better than the morning of, and make sure everyone's on the same page. And they'll also share with you any concerns they have, anything that they are worried about, which is going to help you plan your anesthetic. So many, many questions came in about the kind of story of ACRAC and how it started and why. So I started off in emergency medicine. I matched into an emergency medicine program. And uh, as an emergency medicine intern, I listened to EM Rap, which is a fantastic podcast um, specific to emergency medicine. And I, I always thought it was such a good resource. I listened to it while I ran and commuted. And then at some point, I started listening to MCRIT when it came out uh, and thought that was fantastic. And when I switched into anesthesia, I was really taken aback that there was nothing like it. There just wasn't a similar podcast uh, that there, as there ones there were in emergency medicine. And I always kind of thought in the back of my head, I wish there was one. And maybe at some point, I would think about doing something, but I never really got around to it. And it wasn't until I was a, an attending when I had finished fellowship and I was getting involved with our residents and teaching them. Uh, and I heard from them that they wished they had an audio resource. And I thought back to how I had always kind of been interested in this. And I thought, man, I have no idea how to do this. I, ha- I just had no clue. I didn't even know how one would go about recording a podcast, um, let alone posting it on the internet. I never even heard about RSS feeds or anything that that, that may be or how to, how to do them. 
Um, but like so many things in life, if you wait until you know everything about something, you're, you're going to actually do very little. So you sometimes just have to take that plunge. And so I thought, all right, you know, I'm going to look into this. I'll do some YouTubing. I'll look it up on the internet. I'll try to figure this out. I'll make one and see what I can do with it. And it, and I figured, you know, our residents, maybe some of our residents will use it. I figured that's about as far as it would go. I learned how to put it on iTunes. I did it, not thinking anyone would actually probably download it from there other than maybe our residents. Um, but as I learned a little more, and if you listen to episode one, you'll see it was literally just me talking into the computer. I didn't have a microphone, didn't really know what I was doing. The audio is terrible. I think on episode four, it only plays in one ear. If you're listening to it on earphones, I don't still to this day, don't know why that happened, but uh, as I learned a little more and put them out there, uh, you know, our residents were appreciative. And as I said, they really were the inspiration for the whole thing. And then have really been, I'll be honest, taken aback. There are now more than 30,000 listeners worldwide every month. Uh, it's really just a pleasure to get the emails from all around the world and, and know that people are out there and using it. So it's been a lot of fun. And that's how it came about. People have also asked where I come up with episodes. Uh, at first, I was thinking I would just go through the ABA keywords. That's the American Board of Anesthesiology keywords to kind of try to cover everything. And really, over the couple of years I've been doing it, I've gotten so many requests coming in now that I just try to, when I see a request coming in again and again, I try to cover things that people are asking for. So that really guides it and then occasionally still work in some just straight ABA keyword episodes. Most recently, I think, were the ones on neuromuscular blockade and neuromuscular blockade reversal. People have also asked about my personal life story. So uh, briefly, I guess I'll say I grew up outside of Cleveland, Ohio in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Um, as I said, Celeste Ng, who wrote the um, book Little Fires Everywhere, was in my class, and that's where you may have heard me mention um, Shaker Heights before. Uh, I went to high school there. I went to Brown University undergraduate where I studied history, and then I went to become a teacher. I went to Harvard Graduate School of Education, got my master's, got my teaching license, and I taught ninth grade world history. Um, I liked it. Uh, some things about it I loved, but unfortunately it was a time when um, the graduation tests were really becoming a major thing, and I found that I was being told I had to teach to the tests, which is just not why I wanted to teach history. I wanted to be able to do the debates and the deep thinking about citizenship and what it means to be a citizen of society, and that just couldn't do that. We just didn't have time, and so ended up switching, went back, did some post-bac stuff, applied to medical schools, went out to UCSF in San Francisco. I did medical school there, and then, as you heard, matched into emergency medicine. Uh, started that fantastic program at Highland in Oakland. It's really a great program and amazing people. Um, I really fell in love with critical care and decided to switch into anesthesia as a way to do critical care. Uh, it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made was to leave that program because it was a great program, and, and I felt so... Um, worried about disappointing the folks there. But I will say that um, Gene Hearn and Charlotte Wills were just fantastic. Uh, they were so supportive, despite the fact that my leaving, of course, I'm sure was very difficult for them. Um, my co-interns and the faculty there were all so supportive. So I really felt lucky um, to be in that position. Went back to UCSF uh, for my anesthesia residency. And then in 2014, I came to Hopkins for my ICU fellowship and then have stayed on ever since. Um, of course, that's my, my work life. I also was incredibly lucky when I was in medical school to meet my wife. 
Um, she, in a uh, very Grey's Anatomy-esque, slightly scandalous manner, was my attending when I was a medical student. Uh, that's actually easily findable. It was published in the New York Times, so I don't try to hide it. We did not date while I was uh, working with her. In fact, it was at the end of my uh, time working with her in the pediatric clinic that I wrote her an email and asked her out. She uh, almost didn't respond because she thought it was not you know, appropriate. She asked her boss, uh, who told her, look, as long as you're not supervising or evaluating him anymore, it's up to you. She wasn't going to say yes, but a bunch of her, her guy friends who had been medical students thought it was so brave that I had asked my attending out. They told her she had to at least give me one chance, even if she had no interest. And so she said, fine, I'll go out to one date with the guy. So we went out to dinner and ended up really uh, seeing each other pretty consistently I think almost every day, every other day for a couple of weeks and, and quickly launched into what became a very serious relationship. And we actually got married just 13 months later. Uh, we um, had our first daughter, Ava, about a year after we got married. And then uh, our second daughter, a year and a half after that. And then our third daughter, just eight and a half months ago. So as I said, I feel incredibly lucky to have my wife and daughters in my life. They are the highlight of, of really all that I do, and uh, I couldn't be luckier. When I'm not at work, I'm often spending time with my daughters and my wife. Uh, sometimes I still have time to read. I often am really just quote-unquote reading when I'm running, listening to books on tape. I love running. It's the, such a central part of my life. I try to swim about one or two days a week just to do a little cross-training, but the vast majority of my exercise is running. And as I said, always in the morning, regardless of temperature, regardless of weather, honestly, there is nothing that can stop you from running if you're really determined. You can run in the middle of a blizzard. You can run with a foot of snow on the ground. You just have to be willing to do it. And I, I think if you do, it'll pay off, as I said. So another clinical question that came in was around ketamine. Uh, do I like it? I love ketamine. I love to use it. I think it's got a, just a ton of benefit. Um, we may well do an, an entire episode on ketamine. I will say that I like to use it as an adjunct, running it at low dose, by which I mean about three to five mics per kilo per minute. At that dose, especially on the lower end of that, at three mics per kilo per minute, you can run that for a whole case. You don't have to stop it. You can wake people up on it. You can take them to the PACU on it. It's been shown to reduce opiate requirement. It's a great medication. And at that dose, it's not dissociative. And that's really key. There is no dissociation at that dose. So that's why you can wake people up on it. That's why it's safe to use. You do not have to worry about people with psychiatric histories. It does not cause hallucinations at that dose. It's a very safe drug to use. I use it in the ICU a lot at those doses. And what you can see is people who were on massive doses of fentanyl, let's say they're on a fentanyl drip, maybe with an open abdomen, you see people, especially if they're prolonged uh, in that state, they can be on doses of fentanyl of five, six, seven, eight hundred or more mics per hour. If you start them on even that low-dose ketamine, you will often see that dose come way, way down. I've had people come from 800 mics an hour of, ket of fentanyl down to 50 just because of a low-dose ketamine drip that was started along with it. So I think it's a really effective adjunct for that. I also will use it uh, as a bolus if somebody needs to be intubated and we're a little worried about their blood pressure. You do need to be careful. Obviously, ketamine is a cardiac depressant. It often causes hypertension and tachycardia by causing the release of catechols, but in someone who doesn't have any catechols left to release, that cardiac depressant effect can really win out, and you can see hypotension. So you want to be aware of that. 
can also cause a fair amount of secretion. So even though I do use it for awake intubations, you do want to be aware of that. You can do, in somebody who you want to just take a look maybe with a glide scope while they're still breathing, you can give a dose of 50 milligrams of ketamine or so, and often that's enough for them to dissociate enough to let you put a glide scope in and take a look. And if you can get a tube in, great. If not, you can. they're still breathing. You can reassess uh, what you want to do next. So ketamine is a really great drug, and uh, I recommend it, of course, based on your own uh, algorithms and protocols. And if you're a trainee, obviously in discussion with your attending. Lots of interesting questions around blood pressure management, whether to target MAP or systolic blood pressure. So there's no question in my mind that, and maybe this is my ICU training, but MAP is what you want to target. A uh, systolic pressure goal doesn't give you a lot of information about perfusion. Diastolic blood pressure is obviously what's going to tell you about cardiac perfusion, and MAP is made up more of diastolic pressure two-thirds than systolic one-third. So really targeting MAP does that for you. Now, some people said, well, you know, but what about if you need to have a really high systolic? If somebody has a really wide pulse pressure and you need to have a really high systolic, is that okay to get the MAP above 65? I would say actually in those situations, it's all the more important. If someone has a really wide pulse pressure, meaning they have a relatively low diastolic pressure, all the more reason you need to get that diastolic pressure up because you need cardiac perfusion, which is going to be defined by that diastolic pressure. So you don't want to be fooled by a quote-unquote normal or even high systolic pressure if your diastolic is low. And going by MAP is really going to help you. Plus, MAP is the most accurate number on your blood pressure cuff. And if you don't have an arterial line, that's what you're going to be going by. So I would focus on MAP. I wouldn't worry too much about high systolic pressures. The exceptions would be if you have somebody with an unsecured aneurysm or a, whether in the brain or in the aorta or a ruptured AAA or something like that where you may sacrifice MAP and perfusion to really avoid worsening that dissection or that aneurysm. But in the absence of those kind of contraindications, you're thinking about perfusion of vital organs, especially the heart. You need to keep your focus on the map. There were a couple questions on pregnancy in anesthesia providers. So obviously, there's some things you want to keep in mind if you're pregnant and providing anesthesia care. The concern from really the past was before there were routinely uh, secure waste systems for anesthetic gases, and there was the potential to be exposed to quite a lot of anesthetic gas, that could be dangerous. And there is a correlation of increased miscarriage rates in anesthesia providers. Now, we don't know that that is definitively due to inhalation of anesthetic waste gases, but the thought is that if you have a secure waste system, which if you're working in the United States, at least in any hospital here, you're going to have by law, you should be fine. You shouldn't have a room getting flooded with waste gases. And so as long as you have a secured airway, you're not going to be breathing it in. You might want to avoid mask ventilating with um, anesthetic gases, a little harder in pediatrics. And I would say that you need to probably think really hard if you're a pregnant pediatric provider about exactly how you want to do that. Probably talk to your colleagues and see what the recommendations are at your hospital. But when you're mask ventilating kids, especially if they're jerking around a lot um, as they're going off to sleep, you may get a fair amount of um, anesthetic gas leaking out. And of course, we've all been in those situations. You can smell it. Uh, I don't think anybody knows the answer as to whether that very small amount in a short amount of time actually has any effect. But again, I would encourage you to speak to your colleagues, speak to your department to figure out what the recommendation is in those circumstances. With adults, we do inhaled inductions a lot less 
And if you choose, you can always choose not to use SIVO during the initial pre-oxygen or mask ventilation after you've induced, and you should be fine to just use additional propofol or whatever you want, uh, and it's very, very low exposure. Uh, you want to think about other things, of course, radiation. So if you're doing cases that involve a lot of x-rays or CTs, you want to be very cognizant of that. We try to just keep our providers out of those rooms to the greatest extent possible. So that's obviously a good thing to keep in mind. I think for the most part, anesthesia is thought to be very safe even for to give anesthesia, especially uh, or even for, for pregnant anesthesia providers. But you do want to be as cautious as you can. The main things being make sure you have a functioning waste system uh, that is secure and meets the regulations, make sure you avoid radiation as much as you can, and to the extent that you can, avoid any leaking anesthetic gases into the uh, OR outside of the waste system. A couple of listeners asked about well-being in providers and well-being in trainees. One person specifically said they had heard me speak and give grand rounds at their institution about well-being, and I really appreciate uh, that you enjoyed the talk. Um, I do speak regularly about well-being in trainees. I think it's an incredibly important issue. Uh, I'll say that one of the main things, and some of the questions were how I got interested. I got interested in this because I think it's a hugely important issue, and as I began getting involved in resident education, I realized that this is something that just is not being focused on as much as it should. It's starting to become more of a recognized issue, but we have burnout rates in our trainees that are probably somewhere around 50% in anesthesia, varies by specialty, but it's a huge issue. And it's not just something we can dismiss and say, well, burnout, oh, well, just kind of suck it up and work hard. That's not a good way to deal with it. We know that burnout has real effects on our trainees and on any practitioner. People who are burned out, trainees who are burned out, are more likely to get in car accidents, more likely to abuse alcohol and drugs, more likely to have suicidal ideations. It's a big, big deal for them personally. And it matters for our patients. Trainees who are burned out are more likely to make medical errors, more likely not to follow best practices. We know this from multiple studies. So it's a big deal, and we really need to pay attention to this. I can and do give quite uh, extensive talks on this and won't take all that much time now, but I'll just say this is a really important issue, and I think we need to encourage everyone in anesthesia and every specialty to pay more attention to this. We have a system that really was designed, medical education was designed as really quite labor-centric and not learner-centric. We don't treat our learners as adult learners traditionally in medicine. We say, you show up for residency, go where I tell you, do what I tell you, don't complain, don't need to sleep too much, and I will spit you out on the other end, an anesthesiologist or a surgeon or an internal medicine doctor, whatever it is. We tell people to put their lives on hold the minute they walk in the door. We don't allow them to be complete people. We don't treat them as adult learners. So it really shouldn't be a surprise that that has led to sky-high burnout rates. And I think that what we've seen in the studies that have been done is that the way to reduce burnout is not by throwing free food at people, though that's always nice. No one's complaining about free food. And it's not by telling people to get more resilient. It's by changing the structure, by providing support, by making people feel like it's okay to take care of themselves and that we recognize they are adults that need to be part of their own education, that need to have some say and some control over their education and their lives, and that we understand that 
you do have lives outside of work, and those are important too. And you don't have to and really can't just put them on hold for three or four or five or however many years your training program is. It needs to be, we need to think of people as whole people if we want them to be well. So I think that's the most important thing. A lot of the specifics of how we're doing that, and I think we've been very successful, though we, of course, are always still working. I think uh, I'm happy to talk about any time if people are interested. Lots of questions about sepsis and septic shock. Uh, I do uh, think we will do an episode on that, so I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on it. But I will say, if you're thinking in terms of the most important things, what do we know? We know the most important things are if you can get cultures and give antibiotics. You don't want to delay the antibiotics to get the cultures, but if it's possible to get, get cultures first, that's great. Uh, you want to think about fluid and pressors. Traditionally, it was give a bunch of fluid, and then if they're still hypotensive, give pressors. We're really moving much more toward thinking about those things together. They probably need some fluid, though there's a lot of controversy over how much fluid they need. Probably moving away from flooding them with fluid and really thinking about the fact that we need some pressors and fluid to kind of strike a good balance and not overdo the fluid, though I'm not telling you to be super conservative with fluid in a floridly septic patient or a patient with septic shock. You want to go by your own institution guidelines there. You want to make sure you have good access. It does not have to be a central line, but you don't want a 22-gauge IV in the finger in a septic patient to be your only access, so make sure you get good access, and then you're going to support them however they need that support. Sometimes they're going to be need, to need to be intubated. Sometimes they won't. You can think about there's some interesting uh, emerging data on metabolic treatments for sepsis, so the palmeric cocktail, for example, giving uh, 1.5 grams Q6 hours of vitamin C along with thiamine, 200 milligrams Q12, and steroids, 50 milligrams Q6. We'll see as some randomized trials of that come out, uh, and of course, lots of other interesting stuff out there. But I would say in general, supporting people, making sure not to think only about fluid, but to think about pressors early, of course, antibiotics being really crucial, and thinking about other things, keeping your eye on the literature, uh, getting to people early and giving them the support they need. People asked about vasopressin and steroids. Uh, for me, once I get have a patient who is getting on pretty high-dose levofed, by which I think of around 0.3 or 0.4 mics per kilo per minute of levofed, or, or that is norepinephrine, then uh, I will uh, start adding vasopressin at 0.04 uh, units per minute. There's a lot of controversy around that, too. And again, I would say check with your attending or check with your institution to see what the guidelines are. We have a lot of varied practice here. Some people stay away from vasopressin uh, until they're maxed out on norepinephrine. Some people do it very early. I think uh, there's not a clear-cut answer in the literature. Personally, as I said, I will, once I start to get into those intermediate to high doses of levofed, we'll start it. And then once I'm on levofed, again, norepinephrine and vasopressin, or if there's any suggestion that the patient may be adrenally insufficient based on prior use, recent use of steroids, I will start stress dose steroids at 50 milligrams Q6. We won't get in right now to the recent trials, the approaches and adrenal trials. Um, interesting discussion to be had there, but I'll just say that that's my approach, is that I don't wait until they're maxed out on norepinephrine, epinephrine, vasopressin, and then give steroids. I pull that trigger a little earlier, and I think uh, it's a safe thing to do and can have some benefit, though, again, there's a lot of debate in the literature. 
a lot of questions about uh, my personal favorites. So uh, several people wanted to know what my favorite induction is. As my residents know, the only uh, slightly different thing about the way I like to induce is that I like to use Esmolol instead of fentanyl with induction. So my quote-unquote standard induction is going to be, again, depending on the patient, but the most common for a patient that I'm not particularly worried about, um, transient hypotension is going to be the following. So I will give lidocaine, uh, about 100 milligrams. This is to a regular size adult, about 100 milligrams of lidocaine. And then I will give 20 milligrams of Esmolol along with about 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram of propofol, depending on the patient's age. And with my propofol, I almost always will give 100 to 200 micrograms of phenylephrine. Some people will wait, and if there is hypotension, then treat it. I just almost always know that there's going to be hypotension when you push propofol, so I'd rather just prevent it in the first place by giving that phenylephrine right along with it. I give that test dose of 20 milligrams of Esmolol just to see the effect and make sure the patient doesn't have anything like a heart block result from it and to just get a little bit of that sympathetic blockade going early. And then I will give uh, the, once the patient is apneic and my resident or CRNA has started ventilating and proven that we can mask ventilate, then I will give neuromuscular blockade as long as it's not contraindicated, usually rocuronium or vecuronium. And then uh, right before they are ready to intubate, I will give another 50 milligrams of Esmolol. As soon as that kicks in, which takes about 30 seconds, then I'll tell them to go ahead and intubate. So the induction is lidocaine, Esmolol, propofol, phenylephrine, neuromuscular blocker, and some more Esmolol. Why Esmolol? Because there's really no need for fentanyl. Intubation is not a painful event. It's stimulating, but not painful. And if you can avoid those opiates, then avoid them. You will probably have to give some before incision, unless you have a block of some kind or an epidural. But there's no reason to give them early. And the synergistic effect of the opiates plus the propofol plus some inhaled anesthetic that you start after intubation is going to produce a fair amount of hypotension that you're going to be fighting while you're doing your lines. I'd rather not fight it as much. And if you don't give the fentanyl, you'll find that you don't have to fight it quite as much. Esmolol is a great drug to prevent the sympathetic stimulation of intubation without having a long-lasting effect and without causing a lot of hypotension. Esmolol is a pretty safe drug. It will take your heart rate from 90 down to 60, but it will not take your heart rate from 50 down to 20. So you can give it to people really no matter what their heart rate is, and it's not going to put them into asystole. It's not a set effect. It really will lower your heart rate. Even if it's already low, it won't lower it that much more. It will lower it from a high Heart rate, if you're tachycardic, it lowers it quite a bit. If you have a normal heart rate, it doesn't lower it all that much. So I find that it's safe to give. Uh, again, if you're a trainee, discuss with your attending before doing this. If you are in independent practice, make your own decisions, but consult with uh, your own institution to make sure that you're following guidelines. There was one interesting question about uh, EKG lead placement, and when we often, as, as of course you all know, we often will put leads in non-standard positions to get them out of the surgical field, and if you do that, if you're moving your leads around quite a bit, how does that affect your ability to detect ischemia and arrhythmias? Well, arrhythmias shouldn't affect it, right? If there's a patient has a major arrhythmia, you're going to be able to see it as long as you have an EKG tracing. Ischemia is another thing, and it probably does have some effect on our ability 
ability to detect ischemia by putting our EKG leads in unusual places? I don't know, and certainly I'm not aware of any literature specifically quantifying that, but it's a good thing to keep in mind. I don't know what you can do about it. You really aren't going to be able to put your ECG leads in the middle of the surgical field, but I would try to get them as close as you can to the normal anatomical location, and then just be aware that you know your ischemia detection, you're going to be able to detect massive ischemia, but any subtle ischemia you may be unable to do. I think the biggest thing is make sure you are aware of or even print out a baseline. So whenever you have your leads in place, look at or print out what does it look like, and then you'll be able to tell if there's a change. And I think that's probably the most significant thing, and that's going to be independent of where your leads are. You'll still be able to see a change as long as you leave your leads where they are. A variety of people asked what the best part of my job is, without a doubt. The best part of my job is working with our residents here. I think I mentioned this up front, but there's just no question. We have incredible residents here. I feel so lucky to get to work with them, and I really mean that. I learn a ton from them. I really just am always fascinated by what they bring to the table from their personal experiences here and before they came here, their families, their their interests, what they've done, where they're going, what they want to know about, what they can teach me. It's just the highlight of my day. I get up. I'm excited to come to work more than anything. And I do love anesthesia and critical care. I love what I do in the ICU. I love what I do in the OR. But what makes me the most excited to come to work is getting to work with the trainees here. It's just a pleasure. And I'm so thankful to them for being the amazing people that they are, for the incredible hard work they put in every day, and for their dedication both to our program and to their patients and to each other. So a big thank you to them. And that's definitely the highlight of my job. As I've already said, the highlight of, I I guess I would say, my life outside of work is definitely my family. There's just something magical about, uh, and those of you with kids will know this, about having children, watching them grow. I have three amazing daughters, Ava, Leah, and Grace. Grace is eight and a half, almost nine months, and watching her as she learns to pull up, as she learns to move around, as she's just exploring the world, it is humbling. It reminds me of how much there is in life above and beyond uh, the everyday worries that may bother you at times. It's just a it's a magical time to watch a kid at that age, and, and of course, uh, just an incredible experience to be a part of and be a father to both her and to my seven and five year olds. Uh, They ground me. They help me remember what's really important and uh, kind of just are the the highlight of my life. And of course, my wife, to whom I am forever, forever grateful for everything she does for me, for our family. Um, She's an incredible pediatrician and takes amazing care of her own patients and is an inspiration to me and always has been since the day I met her. So um, really, uh, that is the highlight of of my, my full life. Somebody asked, uh, in fact, there were several questions about kind of around the issue of common mistakes that I see um, in in people who are learning anesthesia. Uh, So, uh, again, uh, just kind of a few things that I think are interesting. One is when it comes to intubations, the most common mistake I see with medical students or early residents who are struggling with an intubation is they're not midline. It's not what you normally think. And and what I see is people will go in with the laryngoscope, especially with a Mac blade, and you'll see they keep going and keep going and keep going, and and they're hubbed. They've got the whole Mac 3 blade, you know, in the patient's mouth. They're starting to insert the handle, and, and they're not seeing anything, so they think they have to go deeper. It is incredibly rare to need to 
not to have a Mac 3 blade not be long enough. It does happen. There are some people with really long oropharynxes and, and long necks that, you know, you may actually need a Mac 4, but it's really rare. What I find is that if you have that happening or if you see the epiglottis and lift and nothing happens, it's usually not because they have a floppy epiglottis and it's usually not because it's way, way deep. It's usually because you're not midline and you can just be a little bit off left or right and that can be enough that you don't get that lift or that you don't see what you need to see. So what I tell people is, Think about moving a little bit left, a little bit right. Take your time. Try to find that that nice midline spot, and that often can make a huge difference. When I have to reach in and help adjust, it's almost always moving a little bit left or a little bit right. It's rarely too shallow. It sometimes is too deep if because of being off midline they've gone really too deep. But think about midline. I think people often think about shallow and deep and think less about midline, but that's the most common thing for intubation that I see. Another common little thing, this may be unique to our uh, machines, I don't know, is that people will push the go stop button to start the blood pressure cuff and then will never set it to cycle. And that's a tricky one because you'll see a blood pressure up there. And at least on our machines, that blood pressure will often stay there. And so if you forget that it's not cycling, you may think your blood pressure is fine and it may have been a while since you last got a real blood pressure. So I always will set the blood pressure cuff. I never push that go stop button to start. I always start the blood pressure cuff by picking a time interval, usually two minutes up front, and then push, hit the enter button on two minutes, and then it will cycle every two minutes. And then I really, really highly encourage people to have an algorithm. Early, early on in training, often people are just trying to you know, do everything at once. They don't really have a systematic way to go about it, and so little things or big things can get forgotten, like turning on the anesthetic. I love the algorithm ABC, ABC. Uh, my program director, Manny Pardo, when I was an anesthesia resident, he was my the second week ever of CA one year. He was my preceptor, and he taught me this, ABC, ABC. I love it. I still use it, and I teach it to all my residents. So the first ABC are the ones we all know, airway, breathing, circulation. So when you go through that in your head, you're going to remember to check your airway. Is it at an appropriate depth? Did you listen for bilateral breath sounds? Is it taped in? Uh, you're breathing, the B, are you breathing? Do you have appropriate tidal volume? What's your end tidal CO2? Is your uh, vent set appropriately to be breathing and to have an adequate amount of PEEP? Have you adjusted your FiO2, hopefully down from 100% oxygen? Is your tidal volume appropriate? So that's the breathing. And then the circulation, of course, is going to have you look at your blood pressure, your heart rate, make sure that those are appropriate and that you've um, found them, uh, you've adjusted them if you need to, to a good, uh, to a good level. Uh, and then you go to the second ABC. So the second A is for anesthesia, which is key. Have you turned on anesthesia? You should look at your vaporizers. Are they on? You should notice if they're not on that that's a big problem unless you turn around and your pumps are on and you have a propofol drip going in for a TIVA. So you want to make sure you're delivering anesthesia. The B is for body position. This is a huge one. I'll feel underneath the patient's head. Is it on a gel foam ring? Are is there any little bits like a needle cap or something that got caught under there that's pressing up against the scalp? Is their head in a good position? Are their arms at appropriate position? Have an, has an arm fallen off an arm board? Actually looking and checking for that is key. And then the C is for Celsius, meaning 
temperature? Have you remembered to put in a temperature probe, to put on a bear hugger? Is the bear hugger on high? If the nurses have set a bear hugger on the lower body, go check. That sometimes gets set on 32 degrees because people think that's a low heat setting, but it's actually, of course, a cooling setting. So you want to be aware of that and make sure you're putting it on an appropriate temperature. So if you go through that both right after induction and then frequently throughout the case, you're going to be on top of those things and hopefully won't forget anything important. And a huge thanks to Manny Pardo for teaching me that, as well as, of course, many other things as my program director. All right. A lot of people asked about advice. What advice do I have for trainees in anesthesia? So there's a lot here. I could talk about this for a long time, too, but I'll end with just a few key points. By no means is this meant to be an exhaustive list, uh, but what advice do I have? I would say that in an environment and a training that was not designed to foster self-care, we have to emphasize the importance of that. Take care of yourself. Don't give up your family. Don't give up your workouts. It may not be possible if you like to bike three hours a day to continue to do that as a resident, but you should be able to still work out. You should be able to still have some time with your family and friends and support network. If you are feeling burned out, if you are feeling like you are overwhelmed, if you're feeling too exhausted to take safe care of patients, reach out to your program director. I can tell you that program directors want to know that. The traditional feeling that you better not bother anyone, you better not complain, that is really going out the door. We want to know so that we can help. We don't want you to wait until you're so burned out that you're not safe for yourself or for your patients. If you're feeling like you need some support, please reach out. Whether it's your program director, another faculty member, a colleague, a chief resident, reach out and ask for help if you need it. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. We have to get away from that idea. Asking for help is a sign of strength. I think that's so key, and I want every trainee out there to know that and to believe it. On another note, I think organization is huge. We, I did a podcast on organization, organizing your life, being efficient, and I highly recommend the techniques I talked about in there. Be organized. It is so hard to be successful in life if you are not organized, if you don't have a system for organizing yourself, for being on top of work, for being reliable. You don't want to be the kind of person who people can't rely on. You want to be the kind of person that if you say you'll do something, people know it will get done, or that if for some reason it can't get done, you will you will reach out to them and let them know, you know, I'm so sorry. I know I told you I could do this. This is what came up. I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm going to help you find someone else who can do it, or this is when I will be able to do it. But be organized and be on top of things and be reliable. Remember that it is not necessary nor expected nor possible to know everything. It's okay not to know things and to reach out for help. Even very senior attendings reach out for help. And you will always want to feel comfortable doing that. I think it's probably harder as a trainee than a senior attending because you worry that you'll be seen as incompetent. But asking for help when you need it clinically or for yourself personally, again, is a strength. And it's something you're going to want to feel comfortable doing on a related note, I would say keep a beginner's mind. The idea that when you're a beginner, when you're very first start, no one's afraid to ask for help on day one. No one of day one of intern year or day one of CA one year is afraid to ask for help because you don't know anything and you know it's okay to not know anything. Keep that beginner's mind. Don't ever get to a point where you feel like you now have to know everything and therefore can't ask for help or you think you know everything and so you're not open to advice. Even when you're 10, 15, 20 years into your practice, know that 
other people have something they can teach you. Even your trainees have a lot they can teach you if you're open to it. So if you are a CA3, be open to your junior residents. They may have something interesting to teach you. Don't feel like because you're a senior resident, you can't still learn and be open to learning. Think what you, how your mind worked when you were a beginner and try to hold on to that attitude. It will serve you well in life. And that also applies to all the members of the team. If you are a resident or an attending or a CRNA or no matter what you are, be open to all of those people around you. The nurses, the RTs, the techs, everybody has something to offer. And sometimes if, you're, if you listen, they'll save you. They will point out something that you didn't notice or you forgot or you were not thinking of that will help you and your patients. There's no reason not to be open to that. You want everyone around you to feel that you are open to their input. It will only improve the functioning of the team. So have that be your attitude. Make sure that you are open to working hard. It's important to take care of yourself, but you have to also work hard. Those two things should go together. Part of feeling good about yourself and your performance and your place at work is going to be knowing that people can rely on you and think of you as a hard worker. So that doesn't mean sacrifice yourself completely. It doesn't mean put everything in front of yourself, but it does mean when you're at work, work hard, be reliable, be a team player, and take care of yourself. Find that balance. That's really key. If you know that you're seen as somebody who is not a hard worker, not a team player, that's going to hurt your well-being because you are going to feel bad about the way people see you and that's going to affect your own satisfaction at work. So find the balance, take care of yourself, but when you're at work, support your colleagues when they need it, ask for support when you need it, work really hard to take great care of your patients and to take care of your colleagues. When you are the kind of person that people know they can rely on and know is there for them, they will really love you for it and you will know that you're seen that way and it will make a big difference for you personally. And finally, remember that despite all the pressure that exists in our specialty and in medicine in general and in the world today to always be on top of everything and to know exactly what's next every step of your life, to have your life planned out for the next 20 years, it's actually okay not to know the answers to all those questions yet, not to know what's coming next, what's coming after that, who you're going to marry, how many kids you're going to have. And if you know those answers, that's fine. But for a lot of people, they don't know that yet and can feel a lot of pressure to know all that. And you don't have to know. It's okay to just embrace the questions themselves. And then the answers will come as you live those questions. There's a great, great Rainer Maria Rilke quote that I love that I shared with the graduates in our program last year that's all about that. And I'll share that with you now. Again, Rainer Maria Rilke is a German poet, uh, was a German poet, and uh, the quote is this, You are so young, so before all beginning, and so I must beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to learn to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the secret is this, to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then gradually, without even noticing it, you will live along some distant day into the answers. So I love that quote because I think it really speaks to how life often needs to happen, where we cannot 
force ourselves to know the answers all the time. And sometimes we have to just be okay with the questions. It's hard for a lot of us with the kind of personalities we have going into medicine, but I think it really makes a difference for well-being when we tell ourselves it's okay to have those questions, to not yet know the answers, to live and work and be a colleague and a friend and a mother or father and a child and a learner and a teacher and all the roles that we play. Let those roles, let those things that we do be and see where they take us. And often they'll take us in unexpected places, but often places that we'll be very happy to get to that we never could have imagined. So it's okay not to know. In fact, it can be very good to just embrace those questions and see where they take you. All right, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for listening over the course of these 100 episodes. Thank you for your intriguing and fascinating questions and comments over the past two years. And, of course, to everyone who submitted really interesting questions for this episode, again, thank you. I hope I've touched in some ways on most of what came in. If I didn't, again, I'm sorry. We'll try to get to them either in an episode or in some way in the future. Feel free, as always, to check out the website at ACRAC.com where you can see this and all the episodes. You can leave comments. I'm sure there are things that I either skipped over or didn't emphasize enough, and people out there will tell us whatever you disagree with or agree with or things that you want to share on these topics. Please feel free to leave comments so that everyone can learn from what you have to share. You can also get a hold of me, of course, at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. If you want to support the show, I said up front, check out patreon.com slash ACRAC or paypal.me slash ACRAC where you can leave, uh, become a patron or leave a donation, and we're super grateful for that. You can leave a 100th episode uh, comment at iTunes, uh, comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Even if you've done it before, you can do it again. Uh, and again, that really does. When people are searching for an anesthesia podcast, it helps them find this one. All right, that is it. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being part of 100 ACRAC episodes for the ACRAC podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on Earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide-open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com.